Welcome to the Creatio No-Code Playbook Podcast, where we discuss insights, tips, success stories, and how to leverage the no-code approach to transform business and deliver applications of any complexity. I'm your host, Jason Miller. I am the head of pre-sales for Creatio here in the Americas. And today, we're going to talk about the myths and debunking the myths around no-code. I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, Andy Dobkin. He's the Chief Growth Officer from Creatio. Welcome, Andy. Nice to be here, Jason. Thank you for inviting Nah, no problem. I'm glad to have you. So we're going to spend the next few minutes and we're going to talk about no code and some of the myths that were that were discussed during the recent launch of the no code playbook. And I'd like to start with some basics. What exactly to you is no code? Is it hype? Is it a new norm? What is it? The way how uh, we think about that is that no code is an approach in uh, application development or in software development in general, that instead of using traditional coding, it uses visual drag and drop tools with a major belief and the major promise that you can equip non-technical people that don't necessarily have deep uh, software development skills with the tools that uh, they can use to assemble applications, right? So, and I'm on purpose, I'm using the term assemble versus development when you can use lots of ready to use components and elements uh, which doesn't mean that no-code uh, solutions will not have the access to code in itself, but this is not the primary purpose of those platforms, right? And uh, with that in mind, there is a belief that no-code platforms democratize a process of software development and make it so much more accessible for a much larger population of knowledge workers. Now, I think that's a good point, and we're going to talk about that democratization of development here in just a little bit. I think what's interesting is we think about no code. A lot of a lot of folks say no code's been around for decades, right? Making it simpler and easier for folks to to meet some of the the IT needs that just frankly haven't been able to be reached by the IT folks because of great backlogs, lack of resources, etc. Mm-hmm. But what's what's interesting is there's a lot of chatter right now around the scalability and, and meeting enterprise needs for, you know, software development through the power of no code. So let's explore a couple of things on this if we can. Let's start with kind of a first myth that I've heard, which is that mm-hmm. because we're scaling and we're able to enable, you know, no coders or no code creators, is that going to put software developers out of job? Does it really, you know, impact those guys? What do you think? Jason, I don't believe that this is true. There are a number of data points that would make this conclusion. Like, for example, uh, one of the most uh, widely used is uh, the data point regarding the number of applications that should be built within the next couple of years. According to those predictions, we are looking at around 500 million of uh, new applications that should be deployed within uh, a foreseeable future. And we are talking about a couple of years. If you think about the technical debt and the amount of work that should be done to maintain those applications and that infrastructure that has been already created by enterprises, mid-sized organizations, or even SMBs, you understand that the amount of demand for uh, overall business applications and software development is massive, right? And it will not go anywhere. If you think in uh, the modern world and traditional enterprises, Competing became so much more dependent on your digital capabilities, right? So no matter which industry you represent, no matter which company you work for, 
putting out their digital workflows and digital experiences is not a matter of you trying to just be cool or do something that is extraordinary. This is just a matter of staying alive in your markets, right? And if you think about some traditional industries like financial services or, let's say, retail, the propositions are very similar. So the only way, or not, not probably the only way, but one of those few options that are left on the table for companies to differentiate is to uh, equip themselves with those digital experiences and offer to their customers a seamless, touchless, uh, hyper-personalized way of engaging them, right? And to achieve that, you have to have very strong technology uh, competence. You need to have a very strong technology working for you. But more importantly, uh, you need to keep up with that pace, right? So taking into account that this will become a norm for so many different companies and industries, I don't believe that any of software developers will be out of their jobs, right? So the overall growth rate of the software developer population is about 4%, if I'm not mistaken. And certainly this is not enough to to deliver all those applications and technologies that uh, the business expects. So in my opinion, the only way how we can approach that and deal with that is by empowering people that are not technical and allow them to work alongside those software developers to deliver those applications. So just to summarize, I have no doubt that a software developer will be at a high demand and this profession will be highly paid and people will be fighting for software developers, though I believe that the content of work for software developers will change with the popularization of no-code technologies and high level of adoption of them. Well, you mentioned a couple of very interesting things there, Andy, and, and you mentioned about the number of applications that need to be developed. So knowing what we know about the manpower and available resource pool for developers, wouldn't a low-code approach be the same? I mean, really, isn't low-code and no-code kind of the same thing, or, or are they different? Can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's it's one of those topics where uh, different people will have lots of different opinions. I started this discussion on my LinkedIn yesterday and got lots of comments and people were kind of debating against each other about this topic, which means that the industry is still forming and those definitions are not written in stone. Uh, the way how we at Croatia think about the difference between no-code and low-code is that no-code is mostly focused on non-technical people. Uh, the major mission of the no-code technology is to empower people that are not technical and give in their hands technologies that will allow them to create those applications without being software developers. While low-code is, uh, in my opinion, is more focused on empowering already technical people to be much more productive or to say, decrease the bar of the complexity when a more junior software developer will be able to create more complex applications and complete more complex tasks because they have access to uh, low-code tools, right? Uh, there is a debate that, you know, no-code tools shouldn't have any access to coding capabilities, which I don't believe it's true. I think it's just a matter of like which persona you're trying to enable and what's your primary focus. Uh, in my opinion, that no-code uh, solves for a much larger problem, right? So it's not just about making people that are already technical be more productive, but given this technology and making it available to a much larger number of people to make sure that they now can serve themselves and apply this do-it-yourself approach in majority of the cases. 
So if I had to summarize or recap what I just heard, I, I heard a bunch of stu great stuff there. Number one is that you feel like low code is really focused on more what people traditionally have called rapid application development, empowering ways to work faster as an IT person. Whereas no code, you're looking at that simply from a standpoint of you don't need to be a software developer. You can accelerate. You can play as part of a fusion team. And we'll talk about fusion teams later, but it's the ability to bring those folks that have not traditionally been part of an application lifecycle development and bring them into the fold by giving them a tool that they can use that still has all that same kind of governance and controls that you would expect from an enterprise application. But realistically, it gives them the power to be able to play in this space where traditionally they haven't been able to fit. Is that is that what I heard? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And sometimes people get really confused when they hear that business will, will now uh, take control over business application development, right? And when we say a business person or say a no-code creator, we mean someone who is natural problem solver. We mean someone who is capable of creating, say, complex Excel file or access database, right? So you don't need to be a software developer to create a complex Excel file with macrosys and all those kind of more advanced features, but you certainly need to understand your process. You need to understand how different entities are connected and you need to have a structured way of thinking and overall understanding of technology. The number of those people within an organization is much higher. Probably within each uh, area, you would have people that are very comfortable with that, but are not comfortable with uh, technical skills. Like think about revenue teams and a function of sales operations, sales ops or revenue ops. They would have lots of people that are not developers, but that are super comfortable with numbers, data, structures, processes. And if you enable them, then they can create a lot of revenue-centric applications without a lot of oversight from the IT. But also, I think that governance, this point that you mentioned, Jason, is extremely important because this is one of the biggest fears uh, on the market that now if you give those tools to the hands of people that uh, don't necessarily train uh, and don't understand all the connectivities and IT security requirements and other types of risks, you are increasing the level of risks, which so, I Andy, should be. Mm -hmm. Andy, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. Because a, lot of, a lot of groups would say, look, it's great. You're talking about empowering business users. That's great. But really, aren't we doing, if we go that approach, is just empowering shadow IT to do more and we're, we're taking control and adding risk, whether it's data loss prevention or data leakage or, you know, governance from a from an analytics or reporting standpoint. Are we doing that or how does no code really help prevent some of those concerns that have been traditionally part of shadow IT? I think that to avoid a problem of shadow IT, we need to have two things. First, we need to have enterprise ready platforms that includes all needed security and governance capabilities. And secondly, we need to follow the right process in methodology to avoid those risks. So I think that the shadow IT risk is real, but it has nothing to do with no-code technology. Because IT leaders and digital leaders need to embrace, in my opinion, no-code tools and collaborate with business organizations within the organized framework. So actually, that's the reason why we have published uh, the no-code playbook with the full-blown governance framework and the full-blown 12 stages life cycle of the no-code process deployment, because it brings to the table all the needed components for us to have a very accelerated pace of development 
using and taking the full advantage of no-code capabilities, but in the meantime, making sure that all the needed guardrails and all the needed checks and balances are in place so that the amount of risks actually goes down, not increases. So Andy, you mentioned the no-code playbook there. I know that that's recently been published by uh, Catherine and Burley, or the co-authors on that book. Talk to us a little bit about what you think our listeners should know about the no-code playbook and who's it for? Who's it written to address? What what are those things that everybody needs to read from the no-code playbook? I think that we are very proud that uh, the no-code playbook came to life and now serves for like a larger purpose to educate and to help people that are seeking for new ways to digitize their workflows and automate uh, all sorts of different processes with the power of no code. So we have created this book for digital leaders, for all people that are seeking to find ways to solve digital and automation problems following the new modern ways, right? So it's available for a broader set of audiences, including leadership, including people that are traditional automation project managers, business analysts, and developers by their nature. The playbook itself uh, has been developed from uh, lots of conversations with our customers and, of course, our partner community when they indicated that they can see so much potential in using no-code tools, but organizations are not necessarily ready to embrace them in the full potential because it's always a combination of technology, people, and processes that should be kind of coming together to unlock the potential of a new innovation. So that's why within the no-code playbook, we have consolidated uh, the best practices and our view on how the no-code projects should be deployed, right? So it's a very practical guide that includes uh, lots of different tools, super useful for uh, practitioners, including key principles of no-code development, phases and stages of the uh, no-code lifecycle, the uh, governance and application complexity assessment tools that allow you to understand what type of an application you're building and what type of process in government strategy should be applied, and many more. I think that it's actually resulted into uh, 211 pages of good stuff, and I would encourage everyone who is interested in this topic to go ahead and read it. It's available free of charge on our website. It's available on Amazon. And it's a great piece of content that help you to wrap your head around the new ways of delivering your digital transformation projects. Yeah. And, and I think a couple of keynotes too. It's, it's technology agnostic. We're talking about no code here. So we're talking about how to approach the world of application development in a new way. Just like back in the day, we went from waterfall to agile or agile to XD. Where we're at now is where I think the way I understood it is we're looking to move into that next stage, I'll call it, of application lifecycle development, where you're you're bringing fusion teams together, which are the no coders, as well as the professional developers, working together in synergy, just like we did with Agile, working together in synergy to perform similar tasks and activities that we looked at in Agile, but by using new digital technologies that are meant to accelerate this and specifically no code. It, that's kind of how I read it when I read through it the first time. And, and I think it's very applicable in today's day and age. I do believe that Agile serves as a great foundation for a no code development process, but it hasn't been created for no code development. And no code development by itself has a very strong differentiation and lots of specifics that should be taken into consideration if you're thinking about maximizing the impact of 
using the no-code technology. So that's why I think that in general, Agile is a good way to develop and deploy projects, including no-code and low-code technologies, but it doesn't have all the needed caveats to really go the full speed, but also it doesn't include a number of things that will immediately pop up in your mind when you start deploying no-code projects. Like, for example, what type of uh, roles should be involved? What will be the kind of the breakdown of responsibilities? Uh, How to approach complex business critical application versus very simple application for a departmental use and more and more and more, right? So I think that uh, what we did with the no-code playbook, we took it to the next level and went into the necessary details required to be addressed when you're dealing with practical no-code implementation. So I've got a couple of more myths that I want to talk about, and we've got Mm -hmm. about four or five minutes left here. The first one is that no code is only for simplistic apps. It can't handle complex applications. What's your take on that? I've heard that and I politely disagree. Uh, I think that with the development of no code technology, now you see more and more no code vendors focusing on mid-size and enterprises and they're doing incredibly great job in that regards, right? Uh, I think that this myth came from kind of historical background when initial no-code tools uh, didn't have any access to coding, as I said earlier, and that were focused on taking what was a complex Excel file and putting that into an application structure. I think that right now we came a long way and there are lots of powerful no-code applications and platforms that solve very complex business problems. For example, I can share our story of working with the Israeli government, where we have around three to 5,000 users touching the system from multiple governmental institutions, including Minister of Finance, Minister of Infrastructure, uh, Minister of Transportation. And it's a complex countrywide deployment that engages lots of different parties and types of users. And this entire project using the no-code technology has been implemented by a team of five with a very, very limited access to code, with a heavy usage of no-code toolkit and became a really great story for the country of Israel, but also for Croatia. This is one of many, many examples that we can share. So that's why I think there are lots of evidence and proof that now no-code is fully ready for the enterprise. In fact, enterprises should be the biggest beneficiaries of this type of a solution because they have probably the widest set of needs for uh, business applications. They have lots of complexities and they have access to many, many, many knowledge workers that can become no-code creators. That's that's interesting. And, and I know that uh, Israeli, I've seen the videos on the Israeli uh, government rollout and that is extremely complex. Never mind the fact, just the complexity of most of the world reads left to right. Israelis <laughs> and, and Hebrew runs right to left. And it's just, it's amazing some of the things that, uh, the team was able to do with that. Andy, there's been a lot of hype around no-code development, but the benefits are real. And and thank you for joining us today and helping us debunk all of those myths. It was a pleasure to have you on the show today. For those of you out there who are watching us on the YouTube channel, please make sure to like the video, share the video, and subscribe. For those who are listening to us on your favorite podcast channel, make sure that this podcast is available for you. We will be having additional episodes. The No-Code Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and more. To get more information about our products and services, visit the Creatio website at www.creatio.com and for more insights on no-code events. Until then, we'll talk soon.